Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Don't stop. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Well, hello there, and welcome again to Mission Unstoppable. How are you guys? It's been a while since I've seen you. At least a week, I think. Well, today I have a wonderful show for you. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Patrick J. Barrasso. He is the founder and executive director of InBalance Adolescent Intensive Outpatient Program and the InBalance Ranch Academy. Uh, he's noted, he is a noted psychotherapist with over 25 years of extensive training and experience in adolescent and adult substance abuse and mental health treatment. And he, uh, he is, because of all of this extensive experience, like trying to mumble out here, uh, <laughs> it makes him a frequent presenter at local and national conferences, including the U.S. Journal Training National Conferences, and FACES, Family and Addiction Conferences, and educational seminars on the variety of adolescent treatment topics, including the challenges of overcoming the culture of adolescent substance abuse. I can't wait to talk to him about this. Uh, he, Patrick is also the founder of Fresh Start, an Arizona nonprofit organization that raises funds for substance abuse treatment scholarships. Yeah. And he belongs to NATSAP board and is a liaison to the government relations committee in helping treatment throughout the U S he also serves on the Pima County commission on addiction prevention and treatment uh, as he's trying to improve services in his local community for individuals who have drug and alcohol issues and cannot afford treatment. You see a theme here. <laughs> Welcome to this show, Patrick. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. You know, on, on Mission Unstoppable, we, we're going to talk all about all the stuff that you do, but I like to talk about the person, the man that you are, and how, you, how this mission of yours to help people with substance abuse came about. So let's go back to little Patrick James, uh, little boy. What, were, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So a couple interesting parts about, I think, myself that might help kind of underscore everything I've done. So part of my story is um, I grew up with a pretty significant learning disability uh, and, and it was dyslexia. And so what happened for me early on is that I lived within this narrative or this paradigm that I wasn't smart enough and I wasn't good enough. So that brought a lot of acting out behaviors. Um, okay. Substance abuse, not necessarily one of them, um, but lots of other stuff. So it was important for me to uh, not let people really know what was going on with me was that I was having a difficult time learning. Um, after I got through all of that, I had a coach that helped me in high school, kind of came into that equation and said, you're better than this. You know, I believe in you. He had met me a couple years earlier and heard that I was struggling. And it was that relationship that helped elevate me to a belief that I could do things that were not defined by my disability. And so, and I had sort of made a pledge uh, to God as I understood him that at that point, 
I was going to, if I got out of that trouble with his help, which I did, that I was going to spend most of my life helping other kids get out of a similar, you know, kind of predicament. That's kind of got me started in the field. So that was little Patrick Barrasso. I knew from an early on, you know, as early as elementary school, that people would sort of come to me and feel kind of safe to talk to me about what was going on in their homes or their issues. So it was pretty natural for me to become a therapist, uh, specifically helping young people. Now, you did you grow up on a farm or around horses or anything? Was that any part of your childhood? So good question, right? So uh, I did not. I grew up in the middle of Tucson. Um, but I, you know, I fell, I, I, you know, I grew up with Westerns. So I would literally go to bed at night and dream someday of riding a horse and owning a horse. Okay. But then I started, uh, when I started my outpatient program, I developed a group for young men that were getting involved in gang activity. And I partnered with somebody and I said, how about if we introduce these guys to an equine experience? What do you think? And this was early in 1990. Yeah, early for that. So I introduced those kids, these kind of difficult, hardcore kind of kids involved in gangs to this kind of work with horses. And it was magic. And, you know, to get their defenses broke down um, and to see them become vulnerable and see their self-esteem go up. So I knew then that when I opened up the academy in 2004, that I was going to build it around equine assisted, you know, both psychotherapy and what's called mastery skills feel a sense of esteem and purpose. Isn't it also in Arizona that you have the prison program working with the equine? That's correct. Yeah. It's been greatly successful. Yeah. yeah. They've got wild Mustangs that they're taking these, uh, you know, pretty significant, um, uh, prisoners that are involved and they're helping break these Mustangs and they're following that. And I forget what the, um, exact statistic is, but the recidivism rate among that population is beyond what anybody expected. Recidivism being defined as do they reoffend when they leave right. prison? Yeah. So it's, it's really cool. I heard it was really tremendous. So what is it about, you know, this, this, the horse, this prey animal, it, it understands what it feels like to be, you know, challenged and to, to be fearful and, and, is that part of it? Like, what is it about them that makes it them just so perfect rather than a dog, let's say, which is going to give you all the love you could possibly want. You could cry on its shoulder and was not going to tell anybody anything. Yeah. A couple things, especially, you know, I'll take it back to adolescent boys, but if we look at horses, they are a prey animal and, you know, depending on what your belief is, they've existed for millions of years, right? We know that we have, um, evidence of their existence a long, long time ago. So we kind of asked the question, how do they survive? They don't have fangs. They don't have claws. So the only way they survive and have survived is to kind of assess what's going on around them, become kind of a barometer of uh, what's happening around them, and then moving away from that. So for our young people, they may go into an equine session, which is more than just kind of hanging out with a horse. They'll do some riding. They'll really develop that relationship. They'll develop a mastery of that skill of riding. Um, but I may say to him, 
you know, hey, man, how's it going? It's good, Patrick. Like, things are good. And then he steps in the arena with his horse, and the horse moves away. And then, you know, the equine director, which is a master's level therapist, will be like, wow, what's going on? Because just Monday, that horse was, like, joined with you. And the kid will be like, I don't know what's going on. And it creates that therapeutic moment. That horse is sensing that something internally is off with you. So let's process that. Again, one of my big things with adolescence is my background's in developmental psychology. And one of the psychosocial stages of adolescence is called mastery. You know, how do I feel a sense of purpose? I can accomplish stuff. So when a kid... Again, especially I go back, I'm sure it's young women as well, but my experience has been mostly with young men. When they end the program and they can write anything we put under them and they really feel that sense of mastery, there's something that happens that is just short of magical. So it's not like a sidebar of what we do. It's really central to helping young people heal from substance abuse and mental health. Yeah. I mean, I know as as a young girl and the young girls I grew up with, horses were everything. I, I mean, I had to have a horse and I did have a horse and many horses, but it was, you know, the young girls dream about horses. And I, I'm, I don't know if young boys do, but I have a feeling maybe they don't. Um, you work with primarily, you, you work with men, young, young men, young, you know, young males. Um, it's a family affair. You're, 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 school and, and your center is all a family affair, which is great. Now, did your kids, if you didn't have the ranch, would the kids still be involved, do you think, in helping others or in a different capacity? Um, you mean my, my kids? Yeah, your kids. My own personal family. So yeah, you know, I'll take a, just a, a brief minute to explore that. I just, yeah. People are fascinated by that. If it was by design that we became a family organization and the truth is it wasn't. Um, yeah. Me and my wife have worked together um, since 1989 and that's been beautiful. We have worked really well together. Um, it was incredible to have her both at work and at home, but each of my children were heading a different direction. And so when I opened up, the academy because I love what I do working with adolescents and substance abuse and mental health is my passion and my love, but it's a 24 hour a day, seven day a week commitment. And I'm not even so sure I wanted that for them to be honest with you because it's, it's my passion. But as they saw kids, you know, and hear my stories of kids getting to the other side of this and families healing, they're like, dad, Hey, what I'm doing over here doesn't, have nearly the sort of payoff in terms of the human service component that I hear you talk about. Can I come and do some work with you? My son was headed to the FBI. My daughter was headed to special education. My other son was uh, headed to admissions in a big corporate entity. They all have master's degrees. But um, one by one, they just sort of looked in the door of what we created and said, can I be part of this? And of course, you know, blessed beyond measure to have my entire family yeah. part of the organization, but it really wasn't by design. It was just them seeing the work, falling in love with it through hearing my stories of change and transformation and then just saying, Hey, let me come in and be part of this. So it I'm, says I'm a really- lot for, for you and your wife. I mean, it, it says a lot about how they were raised. It says a lot about who they are and, and, and your family, your family structure that they want to be 
you know, they still want to be around mom and dad. Yeah, that's pretty special. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. They, we are very close. We all live within about five miles of each other. I love it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So you've got this amazing school, and I have to say, as I read through the program and everything that you offer, even though it's for substance, for primarily substance abuse, um, and the ages, the the youngest would be what coming in. Usually about 13. They have to be in high school. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and I looked at that and I was thinking about my boys that I, you know, I raised, God, they would have loved to have been there, even though they didn't have a problem. You know, one went to hockey school. It was like a military hockey school. And he, he thrived in that because he liked that structure. He liked, you know, knowing how to work his way up a rank and doing things like that. The other would have, he probably would have just nosedived in it because he can't, tans- you know, didn't want people yelling at him or doing things, you know, differently. But you, the, the things that you offer, in addition to all of the therapy, you know, you're, you're going to go snowboarding, you're going to go out, you know, and spend, do some spiritual things out in nature, you're going to uh, ride your horses, you're going to go into town, you're going to date, you're going to do things that are really kind of cool that, that boys want to do, even though it's all boys, all, you know, throughout the, throughout the school year. That's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what happens is, and I appreciate that, um, and what I always try and, and articulate and help parents and families understand that like, we have these really incredible family weekends. And so parents will come into that setting on Friday morning with the siblings of the clients we serve. And they'll say, you know, this is cool. And maybe a sibling will say, I wish I could go there. And what I try and do is really underscore how much work is involved in being at the academy, emotional work. Yeah. I want them not to dismiss that. Yes, we try and make uh, recovery and healing from mental health, but it's really hard work. And the reason that I say that is just to really give credit to the boys that we serve so that people don't sort of miss the fact that these guys are challenged every day to go inside and look at, you know, kind of what's happened in their life that have led to these choices and how they can start to choose differently. So they work really hard emotionally. And yes, we our only chance is if at the end of the time with us, they can see recovery as a lifestyle one day at a time that they may be attracted to. And so we can't do that unless we make it appealing. So we try and do, in fact, we just got back from snowboarding and skiing up in the White Mountains. And kids were talking about, hey, on the lift, a kid was smoking pot. And I wasn't even like, I wasn't even, you know, tempted at that moment because I was having so much fun with my peers from the academy that for that moment, and I was really happy that I didn't have to get high to enjoy that moment. Yeah. And so that's the sort of kind of. Are you, are are you a first resort or a last resort or somewhere in between? Good question. Yeah. Typically um, I would say that we're kind of a last resort. Um, so parents, all the kids come to us from another program, typically a wilderness program. Okay. And, um, but their parents have probably for the last three years tried everything under the sun, outpatient, individual therapy, psychiatric, short term. And the kids keep kind of coming back and just can't break this sort of hold that their peers and drugs and alcohol and the malady of their mental health kind of have on them. So we've got to sort of do a clean break and give them a chance to really be removed from it so that they don't have to choose day in and day out whether they use and their peer group. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, you know better than most people about patterns of behavior, but I can just, and I know that you work with families. I think they come in three times a year or something like that, but yeah. you know, they, they get in a pattern of behavior of, you know, you start yelling at your kid or you start, you know, you're just, they've disrupted the family. They're disruptors. And, and, you know, part of the family maybe doesn't want them back. Part of them don't trust them. Part of them, you know, think, oh, I love my child. I want him back. I want him whole. You know, you've got all these different individuals in that family that are, you know, worried about different things. So how do you bring them together? I mean, once, once a year, twice a year isn't going to cut it, I don't think, does it? Yeah, so great question. So it's interesting because I stepped out of we're having a panel that I'm part of that's educating uh, 12 therapists on family engagement and how to, you know, that we are a family recovery model. So I've literally spent the last three hours kind of, you know, in that education along with about uh, two other therapists 20, 30 years in the field. And so you're exactly right that the family engagement is really the most critical part of what we do at the academy and at our young adult program. So they come in three times a year for sure, and that's an intensive Friday through Sunday program that I'm really proud of. Um, but they also do f- weekly family therapy. Okay. So, you know, they're getting, and then we ask them to do some readings uh, outside of the sessions. We ask them to employ oftentimes their own family therapist in, at home. We also ask them to go to Al-Anon or any other sort of 12-step kind of Families Anonymous or Narcotics uh, Naranon to kind of help them understand this process of transformation. So our family engagement, we do a parent support group online. Um, so we're constantly kind of, re- they have parent mentors, so we're constantly sort of reaching out and saying, come with us because this is the key to our success is how you support your son's process long after we're gone. Right. Yeah. And I know that you work with boys, but it just brought up the question for me, you know, do you know the numbers of, is it boys versus girls and substance abuse? Are boys more likely? Uh, Do they act out more? Like, I know teenage girls could be a real problem. (laughs) Yeah. Both of those. So more likely, it's that boys get noticed more. Um, I think today the demographics is, is changing. There's equality everywhere we look, right? Yeah. So there's the downside of that equality. And so, you know, girls are uh, just uh, almost just as likely to commit suicide, almost just as likely to engage in some of, even some of the aggressive behaviors as boys. So we're not seeing that sort of shift in, or we're seeing kind of a shift in how that shows up. Now, boys, um, are about seven times more likely than girls to go into treatment because they're acting out as more overt. You know, they're breaking often the law, they're getting arrested, they're getting in fights, they're, you know, they're, um, but I think it's an equal opportunity malady, substance abuse and mental health, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And in addition to this, you know, equality that's happening, is do you find that there was, um, a shift from, you know, when you started 25 years ago to today are video games and, and those kinds of um, uh, babysitters, let's call them changing. They say that it's changing the brain of these children. It, it, have you noticed that? Well, you know, we have noticed that and it, and 
I mean, I could speak for a long time on this, but I'm going to make it brief. You don't have to. Video video games and social media are changing the face of how we're developing young people. We believe, and by we, I mean every major psychologist and sociologist and all the different disciplines, that what's happening is young people are not developing emotional intelligence, right? How are we developing that part of ourself, which happens mainly in adolescence, that starts to understand the human dynamic? We read, you know, 70% of communication is nonverbal. Right. How are we doing all that, right? How are we picking up the nuances of this, uh, this relationship between another human being? So if most of that is over text and social media and large parts of that is gaming, we're seeing higher rates of suicide in college, higher rates of eating disorders, higher rates of substance abuse, um, which is sort of um, is contraindicated because we have more delivery services on college campuses than we've ever had. So we should see a reduction in those things when we're seeing an increase. So I think the whole um, idea of gaming and social media and cell phones and Instagram are, and drugs and alcohol are, are leaving uh, young people largely unprepared for the human dynamic in college and after high school. The other day, I was at my son's house, and there was a, a, a mason that's putting up a wall, and he's got to be like 68 years old, and he said, um, you know, I noticed in putting up your wall that your children are constantly playing outside. It's so unusual that I see that in the homes that I work with. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of hit me, you know, how com- how when we were, now I sound like an old guy, which I am, but when we were kids, we were constantly outside. Yeah. I mean, we oh, didn't have a choice. Our parents would shoo us out. Here's a stick we in a box. Have- Go have fun. <laughs> right. So <laughs> we know even, even the geography of the ranch in the desert and, and having a lot of our activity outside we now know a lot about sunshine and nature that helps with depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's that part of, you know, even barefoot getting, feeling the earth beneath, right. feeling that, you know, the energy, let's say, right? But the other part is, is today people are afraid to let their kids outside. And so they keep them in. They keep them, you know, close. And, and, and there's no way for them just to express what it is. And, and, you know, Oh, you're crying here. Take this, take this iPad, go sit over there or get this, you know, TV and leave me alone. And it's so unfortunate because I see in my own grandchildren, you know, let's play make-believe. Let's, you know, make-believe was so much fun. I mean, we could spend hours just, just creating tea parties and whatever pirates and all kinds of uh, fun things, but they don't, they don't have that expression. I don't find today as much, as they did. Yeah, they, they love books. Yeah. They don't have the ability as much to use their imagination. And run. They'll soothe, right? So if I'm bored, yeah. you know, we were kids would have to invent games. And now I can just pick up my phone and go to a video or a game. Yeah. Or text messaging. I don't have the ability to, to just really be in a space and be okay with non-activity. Right. Um, yeah. It's like when the, when the streetlights come in, come home. That was, the, yeah. that was the real, right? Yeah. 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 The other, you know, to just sort of kind of veer off a little bit on the social media aspect of it. The other thing that we know neurologically is that we're, 
for kids especially, and a lot of our boys have had histories of trauma, is that because of social media, um, and definitely there's some benefits to it, obviously, we're on social media right now, but in terms of education, but for kids that, you know, that bullying has a chronic effect, right? Like, you know, we'd get, would have issues at school, it sort of get resolved, and then we may move on to the next issue. But these attacks on social media, yeah. every time, you know, for those young people that have, have suffered from that, every time their phone pings, they're re-traumatized, if that makes sense, because I don't know what the next text message is going to be. Is somebody yeah. going to attack me? So this kind of hyper sense of arousal neurologically that keeps them sort of triggered in this state of fight or flight, if that makes sense. So yeah, we, that totally makes sense. And yeah. you know, the, the, the idea of bullying, but I always think of, and I don't know if there's a difference. I'm going to ask you, you know, between boys and girls, um, girls tend to always have lower self-esteem than boys. I mean, most of the men I know think they're fantastic, no matter what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. But, you know, as women and girls, we, we're always going, you know, am I pretty enough? Am I this enough? Am I that enough? Am I, you know, you never enough. And, and so do the boys suffer from that as much? Or is there other things that they suffer from? Well, let's talk about that for a minute, if we could. So <clears throat> the answer is yes. And so what we've done, and I think it's really uh, hopeful that what we've helped young, you know, I have granddaughters and I have a daughter and my granddaughters, my uh, youngest one is two. And then the next oldest is eight and she's got cerebral palsy, but she can sit today and talk to me and we're very close and talk about someday maybe being president of the United States. That's real for her. Yeah. So we have really empowered young women, uh, rightfully so, to say, to demand that they be in equal relationships and that they have intimacy in their relationships. And, and we've done, I think, a, a, a good job. We've got a lot more work to do to empower young ladies. For young men, we, we have lost their sense of purpose. What is a young man's purpose? And we still sort of... Uh, as a larger society talk about performance-based self-esteem. Mm -hmm. If you're bigger and better than the next guy, then you'll be, you know, you'll be recognized. Well, that doesn't go very well, right? With a now a new age female that's saying, I want intimacy. I want empathy. I want compassion. I want closeness. So I think we haven't done enough for young men to develop purpose in their life. And, and, you know, it, I mean, again, I sound like an, an older guy talking, you know, three miles in the I'm snow older than you. <laughs> but from, a, from a very young age, you know, I had to sort of earn my own money yes. to buy my clothes and stuff. Well, you know, that gave me a sense of like, I'm capable and I can have purpose. Now there's a lot of things that were, again, that, that were broken in my household that contributed to my acting out as an adolescence. Um, but there was this idea that I meant something, that I had a purpose. And so we've lost touch with that, uh, especially in the United States with young men. What is their purpose? They're mainly thought of as a liability, right? Like used to be where we had five sons, we were considered rich in an agrarian society. But now it's like, man, you got five kids, man, that's horrible. 
Well, yeah. now it's wonderful, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I do think that boys do suffer. Most of the kids, people think that our kids are the cool guys. They're the kids on high school that are using drugs and they're like cool and they got all the girls. We got 50 students and that doesn't describe most of them. Yeah. Most of them feel socially awkward, socially anxious, really suffer from body image, really suffer from what they see in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think boys probably suffer not as much as girls from that sort of do image self-esteem, but they suffer. Like, like girls yeah. do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's look at the broken family. In your experience, is it better for, for a family to separate if they are at war, the mom and dad, or stay together for the sake of the kids? That's really uh, it's a super interesting question, right? So, you know, I think from a personal experience, my parents fought a lot. Um, there was times where I wish that they weren't together, honestly, most of my, my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. <laughs> and my wife's parents divorced. And yeah. so that kind of set in motion a whole different set of things. For me, it was I needed to get out of the house for her, it was sort of longing for her father. So I don't think the science is in on that. Okay. I would never, you know, I, I probably, I've been asked to testify in court and kind of talk about sort of parental dynamics. But I know as a therapist, I could never really weigh in as to what would be better for your family system to divorce or stay the same. I think if there's an unsafe environment created in that house, I would say that a lot of kids that we work with um, do come from households where there was some drug or alcohol dependence. Mm -hmm. There was some domestic violence and there was some, uh, you know, there was some degree of of conflict in that household. Uh, But a lot of times we're successful in bringing all that back together. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, my sense is, that if we can help reclaim a family um, and we can help heal what's going on in a family that, that, you know, divorce takes a toll on kids, you know, even though it's a normal part of the fabric of our society, so is death in war zones, but it doesn't ever mean that it's okay or that it's easy to deal with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I was talking about it last night with with my husband. Um, my, he's not my first husband. He's not the father of my children, but you know, my son, my younger son used to always berate me for, for leaving his dad. And then as an adult now in his, in his thirties, he said, Oh my God, how did you ever live with him? It's like, he wouldn't, he doesn't even want to talk to him today. And so it's, it's like, okay, we, we, look at our relationships and we, we oftentimes, cause I know as, as a coach for, with women, you know, we look at and, and we choose these patterns of behavior because they feel like home. So we choose abusive men because they feel like our dad, it feels familiar. This is, you know, feels right, even though it's not right, obviously. So to, to keep your children, sometimes I think in, in an environment, you're, you're, you're setting them up for a future relationship that maybe not be good for them just, yeah. just by, you know, virtue of, how the household runs. Yeah. And what I would say is that for sure I can share this with you. And the data is pretty clear on this. Um, I forget the author is like 25 years ago. Um, I think it was Aaron Fontaine that wrote the book, the good divorce. And so people thought that was an oxymoron, right? Yeah. Like, 
like the good divorce. And really what she was advocating was that, you know, once that divorce takes place, that kind of post-divorce relationship does dictate a lot of pathology in young people. If there's a hugely adversarial relationship, it can really be detrimental to the yeah. to the young people. So I beg my, my brother's a family law attorney and, and I beg the parents that we work with. I know that this was a difficult time in your life and there's some things that you really disagree with. Um, but if we can please work together for the benefit of your children, yeah. uh, Stephen Covey said the best thing you can do for your child is to love their parent. And what he was talking about really was divorced families yeah. um, because that child is always going to hold in some esteem their father and their mother, regardless of their shortcomings. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think that I think the bigger question is what is the toll on a child of a really ugly divorce? And I think that the toll is unparalleled. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely believe in, in, you know, keeping relationships. I don't have a problem. I mean, I, I invite my ex to Thanksgiving. I don't care. He can come, you know, I, and, and, and with my husband's ex, she's fine. I don't, I, she didn't do anything to me. You know, why, why would I not want to be in a room with her? Like, those are the things that really, you know, I, I don't understand where people get all upset or jealous or whatever. Who cares? Right. They're just human beings and, and you can certainly get along with them. And, and I think that you're right for the, for the sake of your children, it's important to, to, you know what, you maybe can't live with them, but it doesn't mean you don't like them or they're yeah, not and, a good person or they don't have, you know, something redeemable. You found something to love at one time. So there's something there. Yeah. And, and, you know, what I say, and for the parents that we work with at the Academy, they know I say this because I say it as often as I can. We work with some of the greatest parents in the world. We really, do. I mean, we really get the opportunity to, to work with folks that, you know, have worked hard and become successful. They really care about their kids. And so what happens is if we can kind of help them be better equipped to kind of work as a family system in the solution for their child, and often we're really successful. Um, but I'd say, you know, truthfully, most of the parents in our society today are well-intended I mean, we've enabled children and we've we've done some things maybe that have hurt children, but they weren't by design. They were get, yeah. because maybe we didn't have things and we wanted them to have things. And in that process, we limited them from experiencing struggles and hardships. And it's those struggles and hardships that build the resiliency that leaves us capable to, to go through life and kind of adjust. So I am grateful for the work that we get to do with families. I am grateful for the parents that we get to work with. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I'm glad that you do get to work with those, with those parents. Now, how many of your kids stay in touch after they leave the academy? So it's a good question, right? And, and so I'm going to answer it again. We're, we're in, we're in this really great study. Uh, it's called the Youth Outcome Study. And, and what it is is it's uh, following kids. They come into the program midway through the program, and it's a national study. And there's some programs in Canada that are also part of it. So it's anonymously collecting data, and then we're collecting our own data. So it's at six months to 12 months and 18 months. We've been participating in it, in it for about three years. Uh, well, actually, we're going into our fourth year. So we have all the data, and, and just real quickly, what it does is it looks at 
you know, what we would consider a normative adolescent, if there's such a thing, right? Yeah. So kind of coping skills and different uh, criteria that would establish a baseline for healthy uh, mental health and uh, at-risk behaviors, if you will, or at-risk characteristics. And what we're finding when our kids leave the program, they're looking like the norm, right? So we're really, we're really happy about that. Then we're following them and our outcomes are running at about 18%, which is kind of unacceptable. And that's sort of, you know, kids drop off. They, um, they go on with their lives and I understand that completely. And they're kind of like, I'm better. I'm feeling better. I want to kind of go on with my life. And, um, so we're doing a lot as, as sort of an entire, uh, organization of programs to help get that to about a 30%, which is kind of some other uh, data collection metrics that other people use to study outcomes. Um, I would say for us, we're in touch with about 60 to 70% of our graduates after they leave. We've probably got 100 alumni that work for us. we probably got another 250 that live in the Tucson area. And so, you know, we do really formally and informally stay connected yeah. Because one of the metrics of success for people with substance abuse and mental health is how did they stay connected with their treatment experience? Those that had a connection, even if they relapsed, were more likely to be successful five years post-discharge. So I recognized that in 96, when I first opened my first intensive outpatient, that staying connected with those kids is really important. So we've, We've got alumni coordinator. We have uh, uh, parent mentors. We have a parent alumni coordinator. So we're really reaching out in every way we can. Um, but I am, I am excited to see it as our outcomes and as we're part of this national study, um, what our results are going to be 18 months post-discharge. Anecdotally, we can say they're good, but that's not good enough. Yeah, but these, kid, these kids became, you know, they, it, let's take the, the horse analogy. They became a herd. They went through this program together. Like, you're, you're part of my, my pack, right? And so when I leave here, are you still part of my pack? And as a parent, I can see both ways. As a parent, you might, oh, I don't want you hanging out with that kid. He, he was in the substance abuse, right? Or... He successfully transitioned from the program. Maybe you should stick together because maybe you'll keep each other straight. Well, you know, um, and mostly one of the big sort of models, both in our young adult program and at the academy, is the brotherhood. We use a positive peer culture. And I just was at a national conference and, and got up in front of a large group of people and said, the brotherhood is the magic recipe. That is the secret sauce. I'm not as important as helping those young people develop the leadership that then can help each other. And we had a, an alumni panel of uh, kids that had gone through programs and are now therapists in programs. Nice. And they talked about their experience. I said, you guys are the magic. You guys are the answer. And that's been true and informed my work since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think that they do become a herd. Um, I'm asked the question, why do kids, especially with substance abuse and mental health issues, fail after a lot of long-term programs? There's three stages of transformation. And I won't go into all of them entirely, but one is severance, one is threshold, and one is incorporation. 
what we know is if I've gone through a transformative process and I don't have a community that welcome welcomes yeah. me back, then I'm not going to succeed. You know, whether I'm an adult or a child, if I go to a weight loss clinic and I hear all these great things about improving my health through weight loss and I come back and I don't have a community that welcomes that new set of values, I'm going to go back to my old behaviors. That's just what the data says. Yeah. So we do a really good job uh, through 12-step recovery, which I believe from the science of it, I've studied it for 30 years. Yeah. And the science of helping young people, like you just said, find their people, find their tribe. So if I'm 17, I'm like, guys, one day at a time, I don't want to use because I think it's going to be better for my family and my life. Where do I go where I'm going to get people to celebrate that? Yeah. High school? No. No. College? No. So I'm going to walk into a room of, uh, you know, 100 people that are practicing recovery, whether it's in Tanzania we go to meetings in Tanzania. We're getting ready to go on an international Boston. trip. Yeah. We're in downtown Boston or in Toronto. Right. We had a young man that started a 12-step program, got some business owners, donated some space, started one of the first kind of young people's 12-step in Toronto. Nice. Um, and is sober today because of that commitment to service. And But you're right. So, you know, we went to one of our alumni's weddings three years ago, and all of his wedding party were graduates. Oh, that's great. Just about, except for one from his academy experience. All sober, sober wedding, wife's in recovery, beautiful wedding, no alcohol, no drugs, 150 people. And so they do stay connected. Yeah, yeah. And I think awesome. those connections are helpful and positive in most instances. Let's, let's look at... Um heredity. So we know that, you know, alcohol can be a hereditary disease. Um, how, in your experience, the, the kids that, that you see who are, who are into alcohol specifically, how, how much of that is hereditary percentage wise? Do you know? Well, there is, there's a study out of Harvard and I think it was four years ago that not only established, and these are things that I let the doctor, and the medical professionals and, and uh, people that are more well-versed than myself talk about the genetic predisposition to substance abuse. But they found not only a genetic link, but they can be carried on more than one gene. So that not only is it well-established by the science, but some people can have it worse than others, which is completely consistent with my own experience in the field. Um, so I think that most people would uh, definitely support today that there's a pretty discernible genetic link that can put people at high risk for developing dependency and substance abuse. Um, I'm you not could so be genetically sure tested for that. That's not we 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 don't have a test for that. Oh, we don't. So okay. there is we don't. There is some. There is some. Uh, talk in the scientific community that within five or six years that that technology may develop. But at this point, it's psychological testing. It's taking a historical perspective um, for anybody. Um, and again, I'll share this with you. One of the first kind of experiences I had with the power of that sort of genetic predisposition is one of the early on in the early 19, 19, uh, 91, 
I had a therapist that was working with me in my equine program. And I asked her if she would come in and talk to my group about her story. That was the first time I had heard her story. And she said, you know, I'm so-and-so here's my story. I was a competitive horseback rider, me and my little girlfriend. We were 12 years old and we won a competition. I won a competition. And at the end of the competition, they poured champagne for everybody. And our parents gave us both a little bit, me and my girlfriend. We went behind the barn and we drank that champagne. Uh, my girlfriend uh, was completely turned off by it and thought this was the most the grossest thing she had ever encountered. I got that little neurological buzz, and I knew for the rest of my life I was going to chase that buzz. And that was it for her. Wow. And so that can't be defined by environment or, yeah. I mean, that's got to be defined by something bigger than, so my experience for the last 30 years is for those people that hit that crossroad, there is something very different for that person that goes on and drinks in high school and then doesn't get in trouble with it and puts it up and figures out that that's not what they want to pursue in that person that can't put it down. Is treatment different? Say that again. Is the treatment different for those people? It is different. Absolutely. So, you know, again, we can use cognitive behavioral measures for those that are sort of, you know, just kind of get in trouble with drugs and alcohol, but probably not a well-established, you know, there's not enough evidence to suggest that they're dependent. For most of the young people that we serve, what we know is that it's a young person's disease. It's mm -hmm. pretty rare that somebody starts drinking after the age of 25 or using drugs and develops a dependency. So there's an early, early, middle, and late stage to this disease if we follow a disease model. Um, and so we know that 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 process starts at about 13, right? Anybody we know we can look at even in in the in the media that has struggled with substance abuse, if you go into their history, mm -hmm. they usually start at 14 or 15. Um, so we know it's a young person's disease. We also know that if we can interrupt it early on, we're much more likely for a young person not to develop full-blown dependency, or if they do, to that they're going to have a better awareness of what to do about it, if that makes sense. You've been in the game long enough. You've probably seen them. What do you think about the idea of the indigo children, the crystal children, the rainbow children? Does that exist for you? Explain more your question. As I, to I, I guess, you know, people say, well, this is, this is a, an indigo child. So he's, he's a disruptor. He's here to change the world. He's going to do all this stuff to, you know, make everybody crazy. So he shakes things up. And, you know, from my own perspective, I found that, you know, change happens best in chaos. So it works. Yeah. And so, so my, I mean, are they real? I guess my question to you, are they real? Well, I think that, or? I think that those categories help us inform how to work with young people. Right. And they give us kind of their characteristics of their person, personality traits. And within that, then we can sort of understand the challenges that we're going to have. But my background is actually, you know, kind of a behaviorist, right? So, so what I believe is that everything we do is reinforced. And based on that schedule of reinforcement, we either continue that behavior and it grows larger, 
or we discontinue that behavior. So if at three years old, well, we know now the scientist in the crib, right? That book that, yeah. that babies are actually, you know, manipulating us from birth. You know, they're really kind of looking at a schedule of reinforcement and they're adapting the, their behavior based on that schedule. So we know that if a child at three years old throws his cup across the room and it hits the wall and he sees how everybody organizes around that behavior, that in some way or another, if we continue to reinforce that behavior, then that, uh, you know, that using anger as a means of control is going to grow larger and larger until that young person's punching a hole in the wall. And so we have to help parents and young people understand that that's no longer effective. So we have to organize the family system around, you know, that's no longer purposeful. And if it's no longer purposeful, then the theory is, and it's my belief that that behavior will be extinguished, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I remind of this, I saw a young kid at the grocery store and, and he wanted some candy and his grandmother was with him. And he goes, grandma, he goes, can you, I want, I want the sucker, you know, buy me the sucker. He was like two or three. And she goes, no, 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 we're not buying that. He goes, I'm not going to give you one of my kisses. <laughs> like, that's the commodity. You know, you want a kiss? I want a sucker. They learn real quick. <laughs> well, and what's interesting is they also learn that even if the schedule of reinforcement, if you will, isn't delivered at that time, mm-hmm. it's more likely to be delivered the next time. So using that kind of idea of in the grocery lines where they put all the candy on purpose, sure. that kid throws a tantrum. And we actually have you know studies in my early work where they would show parents go back in and before a child even requested it, that they may give them candy off of that candy aisle so that they don't sort of have this big scene. So we're not only sort of sculpting that behavior in the here and now, but we're actually sculpting our parents' future behavior. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. And our, and our own commitment to, you know, if something happens, I get candy. I need candy. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So we're almost out of time, but tell me about your wait list. What kind of a wait list does imbalance have? So typically we run anywhere from eight weeks to three months. And um, before we go, if we have time, I'd like yeah, to yeah. talk about fresh start. Yeah. Let's talk about fresh start. But So let me, let me just talk about our wait list. A wait list is, is uncomfortable and it's, it's, I don't ever, I don't, I'm never really grateful for it, to be honest with you. Each family is deserving. Um, And it's, it's hard when a family needs, I think, especially what we have to offer and we don't have room for that family. Um, So I just got to say that, you know, we are fortunate and I feel incredibly blessed to say that we've created something that I think is unique. And, and I believe helps families and kids and, and people are looking at getting their kids help for substance abuse and mental health. And, and we're considered in that genre of programs that really help. Um, so I'd like to talk about Fresh Start for a minute and Fresh Start uh, making a difference uh, one step at a time as our nonprofit that was started about four years ago. It was a vision I had. 20 years ago, recognizing in my community that 
largely good treatment costs a lot of money. Yeah. And a good treatment only makes it to a few of the lucky. You know, it costs us in our state, I forget what the number is today, about, I think, uh, 78000 to lock a kid up in a cell for a year without any treatment, right? Yeah. And so we look at that, and and so what I would say is that there is good treatment. And so I recognize that for young adults, for men and women, and for families, that I want to start a nonprofit and try to generate some funds. We get requests all the time from families that are hugely deserving, kids that really want help. There'll be young adults that die waiting to get into a treatment program. They'll die of opiate overdose before the doors open to those public service treatment programs. That's real, highlighted on a dateline uh, about a year ago. So, what Fresh Start was looking at a month, let's say, for a treatment. It kind of varies. It can go from five thousand a month at a very kind of low end uh, uh, treatment experience. It can go up in Tucson to fifty eight thousand a month. It wow. can go up at in balance. It's about eighty five hundred a month. So it's you know, but it's a longer term program. Yeah. Uh, for the therapeutic boarding schools, it again it can vary to five thousand a month up to uh, twelve, thirteen thousand a month. So it's an expensive endeavor for a family. Yep. And so Fresh Start was uh, again kind of put together to raise awareness and to raise funds those families that are hugely deserving, uh, and for kids that want help. And so we've been able to help a. a quite a few families and kids are saying, Hey Patrick, man, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I need help. And they kind of come to us in a variety of ways, usually by word of mouth. And we have some ability to help those kids. And so we have a yearly fundraiser that will happen in March in Tucson. Um, you can put my contact information, my email address, if anybody's interested in, and helping out with Fresh Start would, or coming to the fundraiser would love to have you. 100% of the proceeds go for treatment. Um, and, uh, so what kind really, of fundraising are you doing? What, what are you doing? What kind of program? So it's, it's a really cool program. It's called Celebrate Recovery. And so what it is, it's, it's, it's uh, last year we had about 200 people, and they're young people, they're business leaders. There are people from all over the United States um, that come in to celebrate recovery. We have a talk by myself. We have a talk by a parent that was um, her family. Both her sons last year were helped by some uh, nonprofit funds. Um, and she talked about uh, how that showed up in their lives and their ongoing recovery and sobriety. And then we have a musical a kid by the name of Sam DuPont. He allows me to say his name because he's wanted to be famous, and I think he will someday. Um, him and his brother, the DuPont brothers, amazing musicians. So there, he's going to do a set for about an hour and interweave his story of recovery. He's an alumni of uh, the Academy, an alumni of our Transitional Living Program, and is now touring across the United States trying to you know, get into the music industry and break through. So he's going to do about an hour a lot of his songs are about recovery. And then we're going to have a silent auction 
um, and dinner. So it's, and it's done in this funky little trail dust town that is like the old West. It's been part of Tucson. I'm from Tucson. Um, it's been part of our history, uh, for I think about 30 years. That's cool. Um, so it's a pretty cool event. And then ongoing, we have, uh, fundraisers that kind of go throughout the year. They're more kind of informal online stuff. And, and, uh, we haven't, you know, um, we don't, you know, we don't have a ton of money, but we have money enough often to help families um, uh, join with families to help support ongoing treatment. And it's not just for imbalanced services, it's for any services. We place kids in Prescott, we place kids in California. So I'll call those programs and say, hey, we have a, a family that has some financial hardship that seems really motivated to help get their child uh, some treatment. Can you help us? Can you discount your services? We'll pay some through the Fresh Start Initiative, right. and then you can help discount, and then the family participates. So it's a. I'm pretty proud of what's what we're trying to create. You know. No, I I'm going to be honest with you. I looked up Fresh Start, Patrick. I couldn't find it. Is there a website for it? There is a website for it, and. Um, I'm not sure why that's true. So I uh, so make sure I get the website. You know, I'll make sure I put it out there. Can you get that out to your viewers? And Absolutely. I'll, yeah, I don't. Uh, I could grab somebody from my office. It's more technically sophisticated, but uh, well, there's a lot of fresh starts, and they're all over the North America. And but I, was, I put fresh start with your name, and I couldn't get anything. I couldn't find it. I'm pretty good at researching. So um, let's let's get that out there. And let people know about it so they can help donate or go to it or whatever they want to do. You bet. So I'll get that to you and then you can put it wherever you put that stuff. Would that be helpful? Or you want me to grab somebody right now? No, 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 no. No, unless you want to say it right now or we're live, but no, that's fine. We will put it out there later. Cause I think that's really important. Really important. Um, yeah. You know, it can't just be for rich people, right? No. And it's, and, and the cost of good treatment. I mean, I think, like I said, I go to just sort of putting a kid in a box and not helping him with school, with his mental health and the cost of that. Yeah. So the cost of good treatment, it's, you know, just like any treatment for something that could be life threatening, it's expensive yeah. and to do yeah. it right is expensive. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, for people to access that good treatment is harder and harder today, I think. And you do it right. And do you want to give them your web address? Do you know your web address? I do. So we're... <laughs> Uh, so my, my web address where, where they could email me is P Barrasso, B-A-R-R-A-S-S-O at N-B-A-L, I-N-B-A-L, B as in boy, A-L, ranch, R-A-N-C-H dot com. And if they Google imbalance continuum of services, continuum of care, then that sort of puts you on all of our different websites. Perfect. Love it. Thank you so much for being my guest today. You've been absolutely delightful. And Facebook, thank you so much for uh, hosting us. We will be saying goodbye and going back to somewhere else. Wherever all right. we go. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure thank meeting you. you, and I hope to meet you in person someday. I hope so, too. Thank I'll you. I'll be in Toronto. We'll get together. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Take care. You're bye-bye. Welcome. Mm-hmm.